Hello, and welcome to Faith Angle, a podcast about the enduring things at the intersection of religion, public life, and journalism. In today's discussion, we bring you a conversation with a think tank president and a top journalist, Arthur Brooks, president of the American Enterprise Institute, and Tom Jelton, a senior reporter with National Public Radio. The pairing for this episode goes back to a memorable response Arthur gave to a question at a 2015 Faith Angle Forum, moderated by our founder, the late Mike Cromerty. Arthur was a speaker that year, and I was listening in as a guest, and the questioner was none other than Tom. Wait, I know your voice, Arthur said. We've never met, but I'd know that voice anywhere because I listened to you on my commute home from the office every night. It was a poignant reminder of the far reach that journalism has. And I think you'll find in hearing them both today how much these two thinkers have in common, even if their politics may differ. Faith Angle's podcast goal is to offer a voice that asks big questions of first-rate thinkers as a genuine value add, an honest interlocutor in the search for truth in our complex times. If you like what you hear, you can rate and review the show at iTunes and learn more about Arthur's story and work in the show notes. Let's get started. Well, hello, Arthur. Tom, thanks for uh, joining us today, and we have uh, in mind a a conversation about some of the religious realities in our country and more. Uh, We are interested in your reflections on, understand you've been thinking a little bit about the idea of contempt Hmm. and why it is that that's happening in the country and some things we can do about it, especially with the moral case and storytelling in mind. What's that about? Well, first of all, thanks, Josh. Great to be with you, and congratulations on a new podcast on the really important things. It's amazing, you know, this podcast space is so entirely crowded with new shows, and some of them are really interesting, and most of them are about things that wind up not being about the things that we care about the most. And I was reflecting on this before, because I knew I got to talk to you, you and Tom today. And it's, it's funny, you know, when I was when I was finishing my PhD in public policy years and years ago, my mentor, a guy named James Q. Wilson, he was maybe the greatest political scientist of the past 50 years. He sat in on my dissertation defense, which went very poorly. And afterward, he said, you know, here's the bad news about public policy. He said, it's only the about the 5% extrinsic margin of people's lives. And I said, oh, man, you could have told me that before I started my PhD years ago. I said, what's the other 95%? He said, mostly love. And I reflect on that sometimes when I think about what's going on and with respect to what's soaking up our attention. In, in the podcast world, it's all the 5%. It's all the life hacking and the tech space and the policy world and the news and the politics. And there's very little about the 95% dark matter of life. And this is a podcast about the 95%. And I'm really, really glad to see it. Arthur, what has happened in this society that has made these issues so worrisome? What What is the change that has brought us to this point? When we're talking about to this point, I know what you mean is what, what's the, the bitterness in this country, the political divisions, the polarization, exactly. right? And, you know, the which is manifest when we find that most political scientists believe that we have more polarization now than we've had at any time since the American Civil War. 
Yeah, why that, is that? It, so there, there, I can answer it as an economist, or I can <laughs> just answer it as a guy trying to, you know, put one foot in front of the other in the United States today. From from an economic perspective, from you know somebody who makes his living, or at least did in academia as an economist, there's a there's a, a pattern that we typically see in the wake of financial crises. Now, for those who are listening who are not experts in the economics of recessions, which God forbid, because that's really boring. Financial crises are different kinds of recessions. They happen about twice a century. And the interesting thing about them, the the hard thing about these financial crises, is that they're they're very difficult to get out of. And it's not that we don't have low, we have low economic growth. It's that we have uneven economic growth. The economists call it asymmetric economic growth. So typically, for ten years after a, after a financial crisis, you have the bottom eighty percent of the income distribution gets zero percent fruits of economic growth. So now, typically, the top twenty percent controls fifty percent of the economy. So if you see a two percent economic growth rate, that's four percent for the top. 20% and 0% for everybody else. Okay, what's the knock-on effect? There were these three economists at the University of Berlin who last year wrote a very a very famous paper in the European Economic Review. It's a fancy economics journal. And what they found was, you know, looking at data over 120 years in 20 advanced economies in 800 elections was that in the 10 years following a financial crisis, the, the result, the the, the cause of electoral politics is the financial crisis. And on average, you get a 30% bump in and, and populist candidates and parties. It was Bernie Sanders and Donald Trump by the numbers. Nobody should have been surprised by this. I mean, this is what happens when when 20% get it all and 80% get none of it. And you could have Milton Friedman as president of the United States. You could have John Maynard Keynes as president of the United States, and they would not know macroeconomically how to sort out this problem. This is basically cause and effect, economics to politics. That's the social science of what we saw. Your question is a little deeper than that. You know, what morally led us to this place where we, we vilify others, where we say that people who disagree with us are somehow worthless? Polarization typically takes on a tenor that goes beyond anger. We, we often say the problem with politics today is that people are so angry with each other. That's actually wrong. Anger is not a problem. When I talk to psychologists who specialize in marital reconciliation, for example, and I've had them on, on my own podcast and I've had them here at AEI and I've talked to them for my books— and they'll tell you that anger actually has no correlation with marital separation or divorce. None. There's no relationship between anger and divorce. What is the relationship? It's between contempt and divorce. And when we go into a period of extreme polarization politically in the United States, we move from the typical anger that comes from partisan battles to contempt. That's the conviction of the utter worthlessness of another person. Anger is hot. Contempt's cold. Mm -hmm. So I say... You know, it's, I vote differently than Tom Jelton, you know? And so, you know what? He's just not even worth talking to. Yeah. I, I roll my eyes. I make sarcastic comments. I dismiss you. I blow you up, particularly anonymously on Twitter. That's the, that's the environment that we get ourselves into in periods of extreme polarization. That's what we see today. And that's our problem. If you want a permanent enemy, treat that person with contempt. So you're an economist, and yet you, you know, you're talking with people like John Gottman on your show, which we recommend, the Arthur Brooks Show. It's worth going back and taking a listen and, and trying to draw out lessons about relationships and marital success and yeah. flourishing and apply them to, to politics and, and political economy. I mean, what's, 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 what's really that all about? It's basically that these are all relationships. I mean, they're people dealing with one another. What we're talking about in politics today is not 
some clash of nameless, faceless institutions. I mean, the biggest problem that we have in America today is that one in six Americans, a little more than one in six Americans, have stopped talking to a close friend or family member because of politics. That 40% of Americans say that they would be very unhappy if their child married somebody of the other party. These are relationship problems that we have in this country, and they, they owe to contempt. The contempt is related to polarization, and it's, it's driving the country apart. Now, my view is that this is the greatest opportunity for reconciliation and progress that I've seen in my lifetime. This is really when we, we can do some real good because, you know, things were kind of mediocre, kind of stumbling along for a long time, and now it's on fire. So the question that I have is what are we going to do? But to do anything about it, you have to go up against what you call the outrage industrial complex. There are actors out there that have some kind of vested interest, whether it's economic or political, in fueling this contempt, in fueling this yeah. kind of polarization, right? Yeah, for sure. Um, it's always the case when you have a really suboptimal situation where you have people that are battling each other that somebody is making money, that somebody is getting famous, that somebody is acquiring power. There's always a case in, in, in human conflict where there, somebody is benefiting from the human conflict. Now, most people don't like the conflict. I have really interesting data from – there's a guy named Tim Dixon who runs an organization called More Uncommon. And, and he has data that show that 93% of Americans hate the conflict. 93%. I mean, you can't get 93% on anything. I mean, your mom doesn't have 93% favorability. I mean, it's just Im- impossible that 93% of people agree on anything. And yet 93% of us hate it. Now, what's going on? The 7% who don't hate it, those are the outraged industrial complex. These are people in media, people in politics, people in entertainment, people on college campuses who are getting rich and powerful and famous by inflaming this thing. And we see them on TV at night, and we see them screaming in campus activism, and they're on the right and they're on the left. And they're the ones who are firing people up. Now, uh, Americans don't like it, but they don't know what to do. Plus, we have a problem of addiction. Addiction is a very interesting phenomenon. We're all addicts to any substance that that fuels the neurotransmitter dopamine in our brains. They say, I don't want to do this. I don't like it. But, you know, I'm weak. <laughs> and when we're talking about our political discourse today, people fall prey to the fact that they read their favorite columnist in their favorite paper who says that the other side is are filled with knaves and fools. Or they, they turn on their television station of choice between 7 and, and 10 p.m. in the evening. They, they watch the movie. They listen to the program. They listen to the professor, whatever, and it scratches that itch a little bit. They, they have shown in public opinion polling they don't like it. And when they do that, their meth dealers getting rich. So the point of departure in a lot of ways for, for this larger conversation and project is the, the old insight from uh, the late Peter Berger that said the nation is more or less a nation of Indians ruled by Swedes. We are a very religious people, but the coastal elites and people who are largely running the country don't really understand religion all that well. Is there a role for churches and synagogues and mosques and other houses of worship in the country that actually takes on some of what you're describing, or are those largely just sort of tribal reinforcing entities as you see them today? Well, I think this is the big opportunity, and it's not just churches. I think it's the institutions that help us remember who we are as people. I mean, it's an amazing thing. I'm I'm, I'm a Catholic, uh, but I'm an American Catholic, and my wife is a Spanish Catholic. And for her growing up, the, the Roman Catholic Church is the Church of the Empire. It's the monopoly faith. In the United States, 
the Roman Catholic Church is the church of the, of the riffraff. It's the church of the outsiders, it's the immigrant. It's the person you got to build your own church and your own hospital and your own school or you're not going to get that stuff, basically. American Catholics have this view, traditionally have this idea that, that we have to build it ourselves. You know, and, and again, we're not victims. This is a great thing as far as I'm concerned. And what happened was that the, the really fast rise in American Catholicism was contemporaneous after the American Civil War, before the First World War, with a great renewal. Coming out of the Civil War, American leaders were deeply worried, social leaders, civic leaders were deeply worried that the country was, was riven, that the country was never going to be put back together again. And this is way worse than right now. Right now you got Democrats and Republicans. You had 700,000 American dead in the wake of the Civil War, and unbelievable bitterness. It's not like the, the South surrendered and suddenly it was a thousand flowers blooming and, you know, we were hearing happy tunes and everything was okay. No, no, people hated each other. And there was a view that nothing could bring us back together again, that the country was doomed. Most people, I mean, if you look back on what people were thinking, I mean, the, the people believed that it was, we were the beginning of the end of the American Republic. So what happened? And the answer was that we had spiritual movements. The evangelical movement grew in the United States. The American Catholic movement, the temperance movement, the self-improvement movement. You had philanthropy, people like Andrew Carnegie during that period in the 1880s and 1890s. It was building 2,500 English-speaking libraries for working people. You had people like Dale Carnegie and Napoleon Hill who were writing books saying, you're the CEO. You're the... Your life is a startup, You're in, to use today's vernacular. The, the self-improvement movement that was partly religious and partly secular between the Civil War in reaction to the terrible times that we saw then and the, and the First World War were the reason that America is what we think of it today, which is a land of strivers, a land of entrepreneurs, a land of people who are confident even though they aren't rich and people who ne don't necessarily want to get rich, but they want to live a startup life. And you know, that's what we need today. That's, that is the opportunity. It's time for us to reignite that. And some of it's religious and some of it's secular and some of it's self-improvement and some of it's philanthropy and, and all of it all together is to put every man, woman, and child, every race, every religion in charge of his or her own life. That's the American way. You're an economist, and here we are at the American Enterprise Institute, which is very much associated with free enterprise mm -hmm. and the idea of a competitive economy. The problems, the economic problems, the financial problems that have led us to this situation are to some extent economic in nature, even structural in nature. I mean, you say that we have gone from making weak people strong to be part of this economy uh, during that period, perhaps of self-improvement when America was really thriving, to making smart people smarter, leaving the bottom superfluous. Now, you characterize this as a moral shift. What do you mean by that? Do you mean that sort of the people responsible for the shift in the structure of the economy were less moral than they were previously? Or how? what does that have to do with morality? Moral problems typically don't come because somebody is deeply sinful or transgressing some known norm, but rather because people inadvertently walk away from their own beliefs. And it usually happens over time. It happens really slowly. So my, th my thinking is in the United States, starting in the mid-60s, we had this brilliant plan, which was the war on poverty. And I mean, 
brilliant. When you, when you look at the film of, of Lyndon B. Johnson in April of 1964, he went to Inez, Kentucky, the heart of Martin County. This was Appalachia. It was poor. And he had this photo op. We went on the, on the porch of this guy named Tom Fletcher. It's a tar paper shack. And the guy's got eight kids. He's 38 years old. He's illiterate. He has a first grade education. And he's poor. He hasn't worked for five years. And, and he says, tell me your story. And Tom Fletcher tells him this tale of woe. And, you know, the mills closed down. The mines closed down. I got nothing to do. And LBJ walks off the porch and he makes a moral statement. Today, I declare a war on poverty. Our goal is total victory. And you would have cheered. Okay, now, what went wrong? He comes back to Washington and he puts this incredible American patriot in charge of the war on poverty, Sergeant Shriver, who started the Peace Corps. I mean, this guy was a, this guy was a great American. And asked what was the goal of the war on poverty, he said something that Every single person listening to us agrees with it. It doesn't matter what your politics are. He said the goal of the war on poverty is dignity, not doles. That is a moral statement, and I agree with every word. What happened? The answer was we got doles but not dignity. That's what happened. And it wasn't because people were transgressing their own norms. It's because they were walking away from what actually brings dignity. Dignity is the, the, the sense of being worthy of respect. That's what dignity means. Now, we believe, those of us who are, or particularly those who are Christians and Jews in the United States, and, and Muslims for that matter, believe that dignity is inherent. Why? Because people are made in the image of God. God deserves respect. We're made in God's image. Therefore, we deserve respect. And that is the essence of dignity. So dignity is inherent. In Eastern cultures, dignity is not inherent because people are not worthy of respect necessarily. You have to earn it. That's a big difference when we're talking about cultural differences between Eastern and Western cultures and that, that policymakers, diplomats actually forget that you can have a communitarian sense that people are just cogs in the machine in a way that would never fly in the United States because of our sort of the Judeo-Christian spirit that comes into it, even for people who are secular. They don't realize why they have this culture, but they do. Okay, so what comes along with all this? We forget dignity and we get despair. How? By moving from dignity to be needed to doles where people are superfluous. The essence of dignity is to be needed. And we've moved into an economy not where some people are great and some people are terrible or some people are industrious and some people are lazy, but one in which we have forgotten that every single person's basic need is to be needed. This country was built on the back of people who were needed. I mean, the Jeltons were not landed gentry when they came to the United States. I mean, there's some total ambitious riffraff, right? Mm -hmm. And I mean, that's great stuff. Norwegian peasants. <laughs> yeah, and they, and they were, and you're proud of it. You know, and now we look at it and we say, this is not a country built for riffraff, ambitious riffraff. This is a country built by and for right now, people who were were born under favorable circumstances and were carrying something like 25% of the people effectively in the economic cart. And that's, that's it's totally sustainable. And we raise taxes, it's easy to do, but it's not right. But if the bottom is superfluous, how do you make the bottom relevant again. How do you, how do you, what do you do to change that? Well, the point is we do need them. We do need, we need them morally. We need them in families. We need them in communities and we need them in the economy. You know, take the hardest cases of people who are considered superfluous in America today. Let's take the felons. We have 600,000 people coming out of prison this year. 600,000. There are about 23 million people walking around who have been imprisoned. The federal government ridiculously doesn't keep data on this, so we have to do the best that we can to estimate. But the best estimate is that of these 23 million, about 70% are unemployed. 
between 50 and 70% will re will reoffend within 24 months and go back to prison because they got nothing to do because they are rendered superfluous. Now, it is not just a, a work of charity to make them feel needed. We actually need them. We're in a country that if we want the next great American century, we can't afford to throw away 600,000 people coming into the American economy every year. They're mostly able-bodied people. They're mostly able-bodied men coming to the American economy. It is insane that we don't have some sort of vocational and technical training in the last year of prison. We're throwing away a resource. Why? Because we have this crazy mentality that, that goes back to the war on poverty where we treat some people like liabilities and other people like assets. Everybody has to be an asset because the American economy and American society and American morality and the essence of what it means to be America depends on everybody having their oar in the water. Heard you, Arthur, talk a little bit about some similar challenges when it comes to public policy to a group of folks involved in, in storytelling and the media and, and uh, podcasting even. And I, I remember noticing that you, you talked about story being so critical and that it was always as if economic and political data was driving back toward dignity and toward uh, needing people and them needing to be needed and the like. It was always driving toward, toward hearts almost rather than just yeah. toward brains alone. Uh, can you say a little bit more about that, particularly as it, as it affects the media uh, climate? Yeah, well, the media and the American culture in general, the media are downstream from the American culture. Um, people have a tendency to blame everything on media, on polarizing media. But the truth is that media react to signals. I mean, there was all these old studies. When I was a kid, when Tom and I were kids, we would, you know, there, everybody was saying that, that, you know, movies were making kids violent. And it turns out that violent kids were making movies violent because it was markets. I mean, there was demand for violent content. And, you know, the same thing is basically true today. What we really, really worry about is polarization and identity politics. And we say, well, that, you know, it's what we're getting from the highly ideological news sources and entertainment. But that's not right. What happens is that when people are behaving in such a way that they're doing identity politics, that the media will give it to us because there's there's money to be made there. There's popularity to be gained uh, from that. Okay, so I'm I'm really, really worried about identity politics. I think identity politics is a terrible scourge for this country. But it's not enough to say, you know, to get on a soapbox about identity politics because the truth is we have identity. I mean, like Tom Jelton, the grandson of penniless Norwegian immigrants. That's an identity. You know, Josh Good runs Faith Angle Forum. I mean, that's that's an identity. Those, I'm president of the American Enterprise Institute. That's an identity. You don't get away from those particular identities. The problem is that when we define ourselves on one single characteristic, or even worse, when we define somebody else on one single characteristic, you're white, you're Republican, you're African-American, and, and therefore they put you in a box. The identity is an, is an inherently dividing concept. It's not good enough for me to rail against that and say identity politics is bad. I have to say, what do we do instead? So you can think about it. The problem with identity politics is it's inherently divisive. It says who I am and therefore who you're not. What can we do in response to that? And the answer is when we really want to unify with other people and want to bring people toward us and we want to go toward them, we never do identity. We do, we tell a story. A story is all of the things about you that actually are in common with other people. So you think to yourself, not how am I different than Tom? How, how is Arthur different than Tom? It's what do Tom and I have in common? And the answer is Tom and I have a lot in common. Tom and I are pretty, pretty similar in the things that we care about and the things that we like. And, 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 and if I want to tell a story or I want to get a story out of you that's really uniting, I would say, Tom, how many kids do you have? And where are they? How old are they? Have they moved out? And 
how are they doing? And, and, and pretty soon we're talking about our kids. It's amazing when I do, when I do focus groups with people and, and when I'm doing my own research. I have this book coming out now called Love Your Enemies. And there's a lot of original research in this book about how to get people who are disparate to actually love each other. The first thing you do is you make them talk about their kids. Mm. And that's a unifying story. And that's the reason you start off with these human stories. That There's a lot of science behind it about oxytocin in the brain and about a brain coupling with brain waves and all that. But all you need to know is if you're doing identity politics, you're, you're building walls. If you're telling stories, you're, you're tearing walls down. It sounds like you're talking not just about politicians, uh, not just about faith leaders, when you say that we should think in terms of stories and reaching people's hearts. It sounds like you're talking about every person and the relationships that they have with other people. For sure. For sure. I mean, this is, this is the key to actually getting along with other people. And, you know, the easy way is to identify with another person with respect to your religion or with respect to your race, or with respect to your politics. And that's what we're doing all the time. And, and, and campuses are blowing up on the basis of this. And politics and social media is a complete morass on the basis of this. It takes more work to connect with other people at a deeper level. But only the story of who you are as a person and trying to root out the story of who the other person is as a person is, is actually going to unite. And that, that's, man, that is worth the work. That's, for me, that's the life in life. All right, we're back with Arthur Brooks, president of the American Enterprise Institute, and Tom Jelton, a senior correspondent with NPR, and talking about storytelling and reaching people through hearts and reaching four different kinds of audiences. Arthur, you've talked a little bit about in the past. These four audiences, and who do you think about when you're trying to uh, write a column with the New York Times or, or do a podcast on Vox crossing over? Uh, how do you think about sort of reaching distinct audiences? You know, I'm, I'm kind of an old business school guy. So I say this is appropriate humility and I hope people don't turn off their, you know, their devices right now when I said that, but no matter what you're talking about, you're, you're basically trying to get an idea across to somebody and you want to make your idea winsome. You want them to listen and you want them to be maybe even persuaded. And to do that, you have to recognize that not everybody comes at it from the same angle. Not everybody's coming at it from the same openness. So I'm president of AEI. AEI is a think tank that's been around for 80 years. And, and sometimes we do controversial work. We're doing public policy. And it's very oriented toward economics and foreign policy. The, the, the moral purpose is human dignity and human potential. But you know, we talk a lot about free enterprise and not everybody agrees with us. Okay, if we want to actually be persuasive in our communication as a think tank, but anybody listening to us wants to be persuasive around the Thanksgiving table or in their work. They have to recognize that there are four kinds of people with a disposition toward your message. Predisposition number one is true believers. They completely agree with you. No, they, they think you're good. They think you're right. And they want to agree with you. Number two are persuadables. You know, they're open, but they don't know. And they're, they're willing to listen. Three is hostiles. Those are people who think you're wrong. Maybe they think you're evil a little bit. Maybe they think you're stupid. But they come at it with a wall already built up. And then, and then there's the, here's the bad news. That's not like the bad news. Here's the real bad news. 98% of them are apathetics. So most people, no matter what you're talking about, eh, it's like they're just waiting for you to be done talking. And, you know, they, don't, they didn't want to buy the Buick in the first place. They didn't, they don't care about your product. They don't care about your podcast. They don't care about your opinion, whatever. 
But I'd right. like to think they're persuadable. Well, that's the, that's what that's that it gets into strategy. So then the key thing is when you're talking about things and you want to be persuasive, you can't talk to everybody in the same way. In in the ideas game, we have a tendency to say, oh, "I'm going to go find all true believers." But that, of course, is insane because if you're trying to be persuadable, that's like a, you're a missionary knocking on people's doors and you're trying to figure out in advance who already has the faith and only going there. Well, that's unproductive unless all you're trying to do is to fire them up, which a lot of what our politics is about that, but that's that's not very efficient. You really need the persuadables and the hostiles. And what do you do with the persuadables? Well, you persuade them. Hold that thought for a second. What do you do with the hostiles? You try to open their eyes a little bit and you treat them with love and you listen with respect. Because if you don't, here's an axiom of human behavior. Nobody in history has ever been persuaded with insults. It's never happened. So I certainly never have been, never been insulted into agreement on anything. Okay, well then, then what do you do? You basically respect people's point of view. You say, here's a different way of thinking about it. Perhaps you say, I bet we agree on a lot of moral principles. I think I have a different way of doing it than you Tell me what you think about my way of getting at your, at your moral goals. Here's, let's go back to persuadables for a second. The most important way to persuade people who are actually persuadable is have them see the way that you deal with hostels. I found out about this completely by accident when I came to AEI. And I found, I was going through this column of people, you know, true believers. I, I set up this marketing matrix. I wrote about it in the Harvard Business Review the marketing matrix of true believers, persuadables, hostiles, and epithetics. And I saw that there was nobody dealing with people who are hostile to my point of view or our point of view as an institution. And so I said, okay, I'm going to make a list and I'm going to go through it and I'm going to go there. I'm going to go to college campuses that are known for radical behavior. I'm going to go to the Aspen Ideas Festival that doesn't hear my point of view very often. I'm going to go to these places, right? I'm going to try to get more on NPR. Okay. And, and when I'm doing it, what I found was that when I did what I really wanted to do, which is to love everybody, I wanted to say, you're my brothers and sisters. And even if you disagree with me, man, if you disagree with me, I love you more because maybe you're going to blow my mind and you're going to open my eyes. I found that people who were persuadable said, that persuaded me. And so love is inherently productive is the whole point of view. And by the way, part of being persuasive and dealing with persuadables is you got to be persuadable yourself. And that can be really tricky. Okay, Arthur, I'm going to play a game with you. I'm, I'm going to play a role of of being hostile. Okay. Okay. And let's see how you can deal with it. Okay. Um, we started this conversation talking about wondering how we got to this point where things are so messed up. And one of the things that you talked about was there was a particular financial crisis that sort of ex that aggravated what was going on. So that's an empirical an empirical reality. Yeah. Part of that is inequality uh, mm -hmm. in this society, and it's not just the rich and the poor, it's it's what we've seen lately is urban and rural, where the growth, the economic output in this society right now is concentrated in urban and suburban areas, and the economic stagnation is largely in rural areas. That is an empirical reality that contributes to this the, the feelings of anger and resentment and everything else. What do you do about it? I mean, this is not something you can just talk about rhetorically. Right. What are you going to do about it? Absolutely. That? Because if you don't, it's not going to improve. And if it doesn't improve, then you're going to basically get – you'll go out of the current cycle of the bitterest anger as economic growth kind of bleeds a little bit into these areas. You might take the rough edges of it coming back. You know, we'll be having the same set of ridiculous conversations 20 years from now that we're having today politically. You're exactly right. We have to do something about it. Now, 
to begin with, it's always been this way. There have always been areas that are more favored and some that are out of favor. There are, you know, economic waves are better to some places and worse to others. What we have right now, and it's really exacerbating that particular problem, is an incredible rigidity of geographic mobility. It's funny. I mean, people think that millennials are moving all the time and they're, they're, not rooted in any place. That's completely wrong. We find that when, when you and I were kids, Tom, if you talk about the 70s, in the 1970s, according to U.S. Census data, one in five families at any given year were, were, were going to move out of the area, most likely out of the state. In any year, one in five families. Today, it's one in 10. We've had a 50% decline in geographic mobility. And what that means is that there are places that are most marginalized, which in point of fact, they are. You're completely correct. To deny that is to deny, deny reality. Problem number one is that people are not moving. They're people stuck. are not, they're stuck. And then you got to ask, why are they stuck? It's funny, you know, when we, I, I mentioned Inez Kentucky and, and, um, and LBJ a little while ago, we made a film that's coming out in the spring called The Pursuit. And it's partly filmed in Inez Kentucky. And you, you go to Inez Kentucky and you ask, you know, why don't you go to a place like North Dakota with 2.3% unemployment, man? And they say, and do what? And do what? They don't have skills. Why don't they have skills? Because our education system is incredibly discriminatory toward people in the bottom quarter of the income distribution. We're teaching more or less the liberal arts skills that we thought were appropriate in the 50s and 60s and 1970s. It's leaving people behind. We have a college for all mentality that's utterly classist. It's incredible. I mean, we talk about, you know, elites on the coasts and yeah, of course their kids are going to go to college. But we actually treat people as if they're second-class citizens, somehow morally inferior if they don't go to college. That's how we talk. And as such, we, we downplay apprenticeships. We don't have good trade schools. Our community colleges are falling behind. And these rural areas, people aren't getting the skills such that they can move for the opportunity. Look, there are real solutions to these problems. But they need rethinking not just the structure of our economy, the structure of our education system, and most importantly, the structure of the way that we see people as valuable. We need to sanctify ordinary work and create dignity in all sorts of work and recognize that the 7 million unfilled jobs in America are sitting next door to people who are unemployed. And the reason is because of the skills needs mismatch. And that comes largely because we have first class and second class citizens in America. And I know it makes me sound like an unvarnished uh, leftist. We have to break down class right now. It's terrific. And you've made the case in other contexts, Arthur, about weather and climate mm. and sort of keeping an eye on the larger, longer-term horizon with the idea of, of weather and competition of ideas. Uh, I understand you've also really moved a number of your colleagues to focus less on sort of what case they're making and more on how they're making a particular case. Uh, how do you see sort of weather and climate and the, the how? Uh, weather being out? kind of a short-term phenomenon, climate being a long-term thing. Precisely. Yeah, you know, I've used that metaphor a bunch. And it occurred to me because... When people don't know what to talk about, they talk about the weather. That actually used to be the case. Now they talk about politics. <laughs> politics is like the weather. It is ubiquitous. It is ever-changing. Everybody's got an opinion, not especially well-formed, sometimes really, really strong opinions. But really, if you want to change things, you need to be thinking about the climate. And climate, in working with the same metaphor, is ideas. So ideas undergird politics. At AEI, in, we're nerdy climate scientists. We're geeks with PhDs. We should not be trying to read the weather report. We don't do it well. Besides, it's a ubiquitous skill. 
we should be doing what we're really, really good at. So what I've urged my colleagues to do when I've tried to remember myself is don't go, you know, scrounging around in the weather and say, you know, I think next Thursday it's probably going to snow. Think about five years from now what the climate changes really are and what they could be with a little bit of climate geoengineering to torture the metaphor a little bit more. So that's one of the reasons why I think that the heavy weather right now is an incredible opportunity for an institution like AEI or Brookings or the other think tanks around town. They can get out of the weather patterns. Everybody's paying attention to the weather stuff. Now go to the five and 10-year ideas that you never had time to deal with. We're doing more work for the five and 10-year long-term climate of ideas to lift people up, to bring people together, to educate people in an appropriate way. We're doing stuff on vocational and technical education, on opiate harm reduction, on criminal justice reform, on the economics of the American family, stuff that we never had time to do before. We're doing tens of millions of dollars in work in that simply because we feel we've recognized that we're climate scientists. It's great. If you're talking about climate change, Arthur, that means you're a liberal, and that means that I'm not going to pay any attention to what you have to say on it. <laughs> yeah, it's always, you know, there's basically, if we only listen to the words, but not the metaphors. <laughs> exactly right. Uh, but that's, but people sort of, yeah. the way that they react to arguments yeah. depends on who's making them, right? Yeah, I know. That's one of the things that you've been saying over and over. Yeah, yeah totally. And the key way that we have to, to deal with that, the way that you have to break down barriers from the very beginning, and one of the most important things to do, if what you want is to brand yourself with identity and you want to fight behind your own wall and fire up your own side, then, you know, you're doing a good job. By doing those things, by basically you know using the 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 bumper sticker sloganeering of what we hear in, in in most of the debates today, on the other hand, if you want to break down walls and get people to really listen to you for the first time, the best way to do that is to is to figure out what motivates your what morally motivates your opponent, the people that you're trying to talk to. I'm on college campuses all the time, right? And and it could be I've seen the data on how. And, and by the way, I'm leaving as president of AEI, and we go teach at Harvard. So, you know, what's up with that? And, and the answer is it's easy to be accepted and to be treated with kindness. Why? Because the people in, in academia, for the most part, they want what we want. We want to lift people up, particularly people at the margins, and we want to bring people together because everybody deserves to love their fellow man. <laughs> I mean, it's simple stuff. If you basically say, I, I know what motivates you, and I want to tell you how what I'm trying to do to get to these common moral principles, people are, man, they are all ears. And you know, some people will tune you out because they have an interest in tuning you out. They have an interest in saying you're just a, you know, you're some sort of right-wing stooge or whatever it is. But man, I'm telling you, and, and, and if I came into these environments just with my identity lit up like a Christmas tree ideologically, like, ha ha. I'm a conservative, liberal tears, man. We're done. We're cooked. On the other hand, if I'm trying to have a real conversation with my real brothers and sisters to help people at the periphery of our society, you do it in that way, and, and I, there's no problem. Do you think people are still morally motivated as much as they used to be? I mean, we know that there's been a big rise in the number of the share of people who are religiously unaffiliated. Does that mean that they're morally sort of less motivated, or are they as motivated morally as ever? I think that the morality of mankind is on the human genome. I think you can't change it. That's unalterable. We are moral creatures. There's just, it expresses itself in different ways. It can be suppressed in, in, in sometimes good ways, but often really, really bad ways. 
I think that one of the things that we can do to truly help people is to help them express their their moral sentiments much better than they were. I tell you, it's really, and it's in my own life, it's just, I've thrown off my chains. I mean, I'm an economist. And, you know, for the longest time, I would I would talk about facts and data and, and policies with respect to efficiency and all that. And I realized it didn't s- satisfy me. You know, I, I, I thought about it. You know, and what really, really, the scales fell from my eyes on this is that I was, um, you guys haven't talked about it, but I was a, a classical musician for a long time. I made my living as a French horn player for 10 years. And when I was a classical musician in my 20s, my favorite composer was Johann Sebastian Bach. And Johann Sebastian Bach was not motivated by great music, and he was not motivated by career. He was motivated by his love for God and his love for family. And, and he wanted to spread love. That's what he wanted to do. And so when he was asked near the end of his life, why do you write music? Like, this is key, because everybody listening to us has got something that they do and that they're really good at. If some, somebody will, you know, if you're, they'll say, what do you do? And you tell them your job. If somebody said, why do you do what you do? What would your answer be? Would it be, ah, pays the, pays the rent? Bad answer. Morally, why do you do what you do? This is really life-changing for me. When I listened to that, I thought, yeah, if somebody said, Brooks, why do you do what you do? What would my answer be? Bach's answer was, the aim and final end of all music is nothing less than the glorification of God and the refreshment of the soul. I thought to myself, um, could I say that? I'm the president of a think tank. I'm doing economics. I'm trying to lift people up for sure. Do I feel like I'm glorifying God? And do I feel like I am serving my fellow men and women? Because if I'm not, I better go do something else. And so I dedicated myself to actually talking about that. And it has rocked my whole career. I just can't believe how much has changed things. I feel more courageous. I feel more joyful. I mean, I write different kinds of books. I talk to different kinds of people. I'm not afraid of going into any environment I listen to people in different ways because, you know, maybe somebody's got a better way for me to glorify God and lift people up. (laughs) And it's really good. And, you know, here's the best part of all. It's free and it's open to everybody. Great point to end on. I think that's a wonderful point to end on. If you enjoyed today's conversation, don't forget to subscribe. And we'd appreciate if you'd rate and review the show, which helps get the word out. Thanks for listening.